Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking Labour Party conference, access and participation, free speech and class at university. It's all coming up. So you'd have seen um, the Select Committee case recently about the publication debate which arose from the University of Manchester. And the point which was being made in that Select Committee was universities need to put um, safeguards around what can be study or can be researched because uh, some of it will be controversial or indeed harmful. In the exact same Select Committee, questions were asked about are universities banning books? Now, the problem with this freedom of speech debate is you can't simultaneously hold in your head that universities have a role to set accessible parameters of inquiry and research. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education, news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, and joining me to open the red box of policy this week are three fabulous guests as always. In Wrexham, we've got Claire Taylor, Deputy Vice-Chancellor at Wrexham Glendale University. Claire, you're hired for the week, please. Well, here at uh, Wrexham Glendore, it's uh, it's welcome week, so a whole week of highlights, lots going on, especially with our students' union. But I know the real highlight will be later today when I head over to the Freshers' Fair to see what's happening. So uh, very much looking forward to that. Buy some big posters. Uh, in Derbyshire, it's Andrew Bush, Director for Higher Education, Internal Audit and Advisory at KPMG. Andrew, you're hired for the week. Well, it's a bittersweet one for me, Mark. We uh, dropped our daughter off at university last Friday, so um, very exciting for us. She's already having a great time and, and definitely a highlight. And in Liverpool, it's Wonky's Associate Editor for Research and Innovation, James Coe. James, your highlight of the week. Good morning, Mark. And for me, it is the England draw 3 all against Germany during the week. The, the one we watched uh, Andy Burnham watch. Yes, the one that we saw Andy Burnham and Steve Rotherham watch from behind. We were yes. watching football and watching them at the same time. Strange Labour Party conference experience. Yes, yes. Right, well, that, that's, uh, that, that leads us in nicely to uh, Labour Party conference and the political season and the, the start of it. James, uh, talk us through what's happened this week. Yeah, so it has been Labour Party conference in Liverpool this week. And we would have to say an upbeat mood detected by all at Team Wonky who've been attending. And, you know, I think this is for two reasons. One is that Labour are miles ahead in the polls, and at the moment they are the clear favourites to win the next general election. And secondly, it was a conference where it felt more harmonious than ever. I think there was a sense that Labour is potentially a government waiting for the first time. I don't want to get into too much now, but there's a number of education highlights, which I'm sure we'll get into here. Promise of more nurses, places, more medical expansion. There was R&D promises about Horizon. But it generally felt like a conference of a government rather than a conference of the opposition. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the context of this is sort of uh, hard to escape, isn't it, Andrew? The you know the the mini budget last week and the and the kind of economic chaos that has uh, that has ensued. Um, I mean, what what worries you most about that? And and do you think Labour's shown that it's got any kind of answer to that to that set of issues this week? Well, certainly, we all, we all know there's a shortage around the medical, whether that's nurses, doctors, dentists, midwives. Um, so that's certainly, if we look at what the country needs, uh, there's some alignment there. But all of those things cost, um, and and they cost a great deal. So, uh, you know, 
wherever the economy ends up in the next few years and the state of public finances, I think there could be some constraints um, on exactly how much of that and how quickly it can be bought on stream. Um, I think the, uh, the the party conference material talks about actually increasing placements. Uh, I think we we know well that that's something which uh, is a bit of a restricting factor, albeit possibly there are more things can be done. And actually thinking about how we train um, some, of, some of our medical students. So certainly I think it, it plays to, to what the country needs. I, ju- I just think on that, so as, as a background to Labour Party conference, there's no getting away from the fact that either intentionally or by accident, Liz Truss and Kwesi Kwarteng have tanked the economy. So for a Labour Party to be coming in in these circumstances is potentially good news. You think that might you know have a chance of winning it. But when it comes to research, and as you say, Andrew, about public investment, it is really difficult because Labour traditionally has less wiggle room when it comes to making large public spending pledges. So things like having the uh, billions of pounds of additional research spend, which has been promised, the issues we know about the erosion of fees in the long term, are not only more difficult for the Conservative Party, who are going to have to, or, going, or are going to, cut public spending. It becomes harder for a Labour Party to demonstrate fiscal responsibility and say, actually, we will fix these things. So I think whilst it is promising... It is really, really difficult for Labour to square that with a need to show fiscal restraint. I think that, I mean, if I can just come on that one, uh, James, I mean, um, the blog that you've done for, for One Key, you know, where you kind of um, echo uh, Howard Wilson's speech back in the early 60s and, and that kind of call for boldness from the Labour Party, I think you've got a really good point there. And, you know, a, a more coordinated vision, a focus that brings together research, innovation, workforce development, infrastructure, investment, you know, intangible improvements movements for individuals and communities along the way you know um, that's my hope that that will come out of of the development of these policy directions for labor and in terms of universities goodness me you know there's such an opportunity for universities to position themselves via the research and innovation agenda but also through civic um, engagement um, status as trusted partners uh, you know going forwards in terms of this policy direction yeah and I, I think there's a lot of space for labor to run to and you know it's 69 years since Harold Wilson made that speech in Scarborough where he said there's no place for Luddites in the Socialist Party. And, you know, if I look at sort of the last few years of Conservative research policy, there's a lot of things, but I don't necessarily know what the overarching vision is. Whereas when I think you look at some of the stuff that Jonathan Reynolds brought out and the um, industrial strategy they released at Conservative um, Labour Party conference, it talks about, look, we'll do four things, and clean energy is the first. We will look at how we improve university spin-outs, and we'll think about research as an opportunity to redistribute wealth around the country. And I don't think that the Labour Party has previously sufficiently captured the opportunity of research and development as a means of increasing prosperity and opportunity, rather than this sort of abstract thing that lives in universities, and you can spin it up or whatever, whatever. So I think there is a load of room to run in there. Just quickly, Mark, on that point, you know, we were at the um, roundtable that we held on behalf of Wonky with policymakers and businesses and uh, an MP was there and everyone was absolutely clear saying look just tell us what the priorities are put put public funding behind it and private investment follows and then that's how you get prosperity it's not rocket science but it is difficult in the economic circumstances we're in and and just in terms of the economic circumstances um andrew i mentioned your, your take on this because uh you know a lot a lot has already been written uh including by you know the markets uh in response to to the mini budget last week what what are you worried about for universities um uh, in given that you know we're heading into a period of of turbulence and potentially new spending cuts in whitehall 
I think James has touched upon it. We've seen it before, haven't we? Public finances, when they're under pressure, when there's a, a round of austerity, then there's harder choices about where funding is placed. And actually, unlike the last time we had a recession, the universities is at a point where actually it's seen its funding in real terms being reduced. So it has already been, you know, slimming and, and trying to live with relatively less. Um, and therefore, I think further, if there's any further cuts or indeed no further increases in that level of funding, I think it's going to become really difficult. And then there's some decisions for institutions to make because they've got to remain going concerns. Um, and, you know, that get, that gets really difficult and really tricky. Um, so I guess the, the concern would be, will, will the, will the, Will the sector be supported in the way it needs to to achieve the things? I mean, Claire, you drew on there, you know, the actual po- the positive role that universities can have. I, th- I think it's sad that so often the headlines are all sort of pointing out things that aren't happening or couldn't be done or aren't good quality or, or all those things. Actually, there's so much good that universities do for our country. Um, and I, But I do think there will need to be choices uh, because if there are if there is a tightening of the purse strings, um, then you know my fear is that it can't just be more of the same. And and I'm I'm really concerned about stability in the workforce. You know, we we, we could see a really perfect storm of of difficulty and unrest across the NHS, across transport services, um, schools. We know UCU are gearing up uh, for action um, over the coming uh, few months. And, you know, that whole equal pay aspect um, is something we've got to get a grip of, you know, and I hope that Labour kind of take that forward as well. I mean, as well, just thinking about the student experience, I mean, a university like ours with, um, you know, high volume, widely access participation students, um, we will see students making choices about whether to continue or not, making choices as to whether to, you know, put money into their studies, fund their studies or go home and, you know, put the heating on, put food on the table, keep try and keep their part-time job. So those more mature students, those with caring responsibilities, those with families, those with mortgages, we're, we're looking at a very vulnerable set of, of, of students here over the next few months and over the year. Yeah, and I think we, sorry, Mark, we've, we've seen um, in terms of institutions and what they're concerned about you know their their staff whether that's the retention the recruitment the the morale um, is a bigger issue than it's ever been so again a bit like the finances you're going into a situation where already there's there's a there's a job to be done um so yeah completely agree with and you know the bit that was i think conspicuous by its absence at labor party conference was a discussion about fees or discussion about sort of maintenance or uplifting that and you know we know under corbyn that labor committed to free tuition that doesn't seem like it's the policy or certainly wasn't discussed in any detail but ultimately if labor believes that universities are going to be engines for social progress they're about leveling up spreading prosperity whatever you want to call it and you want to arrest a cost of living crisis for students, you have to put more money in universities. Now, you can expand them because we know the unit of resource has followed students in the past, but I can't see a world where Labour doesn't have to put more direct funding into universities in order to ensure their sustainability if they want to achieve, if they want them to achieve all the things they say they want them to do. Mm. It's just that, as, as they said themselves this week, very unlikely we're going to get any hint of that before a general election because they're not going, they're not making spending commitments just full stop pretty much until they can figure out the state of the economy and 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 with with possibly up to two years before the next election um so we're sort of in a bit of a a bit of a holding pattern my sense is that they're 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 willing to listen to to those arguments but um yeah two years is a long time politics isn't it it is and it's a long time for universities to see no future of an uplift in any sort of fees or even a promise of it yeah 
Yeah, indeed. Right, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hey up, this is Mark Bennett from Fine University, and this week on Wonky, I've been blogging about problems and solutions for postgraduate taught. So I was inspired on the school run, no less, the other week by DK asking if we're really on top of the size of the PGT sector, and if we understand it. Well, I don't think we are, and I don't think we do. So my own piece follows on from DK's by using some of the data we have on prospective students at Finder University via our Finder Masters and Finder PhD platforms. I wanted to explain just how diverse audiences and motivations for study at this level are. I've also been on my soapbox uh, talking about the economics of PGT. Average master's fees have risen by about 60% since the PG loan was introduced in 2016, and the loan itself really hasn't kept pace. We're in danger of losing our grip on widening participation at this level, and that matters because PGT is lifelong learning. As important as UG is, we can't lose sight of PGT. Now, John Blake from the OFS has had a big speech this week and a big new interesting policy push on access and participation. Claire, talk us through it, please. Yeah, so, um, you know, as a university here at Rex and Lindor, we're topping England and Wales for social inclusion, fifth year in a, run, in a row now. So this is a subject of interest to me, even though this is about the OFS and it's about England. Uh, UniConnect, which is the widening access um, arm over in England, is, is mirrored elsewhere in the devolved nations, of course. So we have reaching wider in Wales. So the Office for Students has um, published their kind of annual report highlighting uh, part participation rates with activity um, and sort of starting to try to link um, that evidence to, uh, you know, participation onwards into higher education. But the interesting uh, development from John Blake is this idea of a national equality of opportunity risk register. Now, on the face of it, this looks quite good. It looks like a healthy shift away from a, a bit of a top-down approach to target setting, you know, starting with a national picture and asking providers to align, um, you know, to those targets. But the devil is in the detail and, um, you know, how far the risk assessment and mitigations might reach. The scope of that um, is kind of, you know, open to interpretation, I think. So providers will have to establish a rationale for prioritising activity. They'll need to demonstrate mitigations um, across any big or broad risks and that will feed into access and participation plans going forwards. So, you know, on the face of it, the message is that the Office for Students and John Blake accepts that some risks in terms of supporting uh, better whining access and participation are beyond the gift of the sector. Uh, and it's a kind of rallying call to, to focus more on um, institutional context and, and more local and regional environment. But I guess the big question and perhaps the, the question for discussion now is, is it practical? Yeah, exactly. Will it will it work? What's your what's yeah. what's what's your take, Andrew? Um I just think the way in which we need to make sure that access is available to all is so important. Um yeah, you know, different areas that I go into and um you know, I've been a chair of governors at primary school. Um and what, what people need is opportunity. And I think you know, dependent upon your background and, and upbringing, you've got different perspectives. Um, and I think it's really important that there's, ta- there's energy put into, I, I actually like what been written in, as in targeting 12-year-olds. I think for me, though, it's got to be linked with the careers advice as well, because you can have the top-down 
impediment for uh, for there to be free and open access. But actually, I do feel there's a job to be done on the careers side of this because you know, my experience of seeing what, what my children have received is not much different to what I received 30 years ago. Um, so I think it, it, it's not just about that policy and that top-down piece. I think the careers um, area has got a role to play in this. And I think there are huge issues around, you know, what, what are the criteria going to be for prioritising those risks? What data sets are going to be used? Um, you know, will consideration be given to subject and disciplinary differences? Um, you know, would a risk identified at one provider but not identified at another similar provider, would that be picked up? How is it going to be communicated to the public? You know, this huge potential complexity for providers who, for this to work, will need to really, really embed their approach to access and participation and be highly, you know, self-reflective and analytical about why things are done rather than, you know, sort of performing to a to a metric and to a test. Which that seems to be the idea, doesn't it? And I, I think that's I think that's I think we, as policy works, I think we could broadly agree with that agree with that intention. Um and it's a sort it's sort of good policy making we like to see over at Wonky Towers where, you know, people are asked to actually reflect on why they're doing things uh, um and, and you, you yeah, it's just it's, it's likely to get a better result. But it is a bit of a gamble, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, and I, I think generally Mark, I think we should never forget like this is the public's money through which universities <clears throat> are asked to discharge responsibly in order to get good social outcomes so i don't think measuring what we do being held accountable to what we do is the problem i think there's still an issue in ofs where the incentives for access don't line up across the so full range of work so you know just to give one example UniConnect is highlighted this week as reaching lots of students as being sort of well liked and effective in 2021 there was uh, sorry 2020 to 2021 there was 60 million quid for that project in twenty, in the next financial year, that goes down to thirty million. So at the same time, there is a look. Use the evidence. Make sure that you're leaning into it. But then removing central funding for programs which are evidentially reaching lots of students, there is an issue there. But I think broadly, when I think about the whole ecosystem of access, you need to develop the incentives on students leaving, where we look at graduate outcomes more than anything, which is incredibly linked to a student's background. And then on students' entry, we are interested in this wider access pool. Those two things don't fit together very easily. And universities face this pull on both sides. And I, of course, fundamentally believe every single student should have the most opportunity to succeed. The question is, if OFS believes that universities' role in a three-year student is often with them is to correct all of the social disadvantage they faced up until that point, they need more funding to do it. Yeah, I'd I'd absolutely agree on the funding part. And I think as well, you know, this... This, I mean, I, I think this is a great approach, you know, but I'm, I'm worried about how it might work in, de- in in practice. And I think it would only really work for a provider who is really rooted in their locality and place, because the rallying call is for, you know, a, a much more joined up, coherent approach across employers, schools, you know, charities, local regional government, um, you know, to meaningfully tackle the challenges together as part of a kind of much broader socioeconomic, cultural kind of ecosystem. Um, that's quite hard to do unless you're really rooted in place. Yes. And, you know, it was interesting seeing um, the quotes in the Telegraph where uh, John Blake was referring to contextual emissions as a necessary evil. And, you know, there's two approaches on this. As you say, Claire, either you are so linked into your place, you know, you have school links or you're working on that really, really deep winding participation activity, that contextual emissions almost becomes part of your identity. You run, you know, programs or whatever, or you have these much blunter tools, which is if you come from these backgrounds and you get these great differentiations. And I think we have to have a more nuanced conversation about contextual emissions of what are they doing? Who are they for? Is it just about students? 
student numbers and which students are actually benefiting? Uh, yes, I think it was the point about Claire, she said, universities can't possibly sort of right any previous social wrongs. Um, and yeah, when you sit back and reflect on all the different headlines on things, there is an awful lot to fix. And I completely agree that universities cannot do all of that. Um, so whether it be through more regional devolution uh, or otherwise, actually bringing people together to solve some of those problems um, is, 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 is can't be overlooked. And depending on who gets that task, um, then yeah, it will cost money. I, I don't know if you agree with this, but I think John Blake has had a very strong start in this field. I mean, I've seen an awful lot of him. He seems to have a really clear agenda to do what he said he would. And I think generally seen as quite approachable by the sector in a you know a part where relationships between OFS have been perhaps somewhat strained in some parts. Yeah, I'd agree. Also, he has a, he has a sense of humour about it, which um, I think you need these days. And I, I, I think he's a, a listener to The Monkey Show, so I'm sure he'll be pleased to, to hear that. <laughs> I think just, just the, the other thing I'd say in terms of that idea of, you know, this only work if universities are rooted in place. I think actually this um, approach, you know, could let's pilot it in Wales because you know we have a, a much smaller um, more connected ecosystem in terms of our you know universities across Wales it's a, a defined geographical area to some extent um, you know this could be something that HEFQ and, and the new commission coming forward might want to look at. Um, now it's time for the hidden history of higher education with Mike Ratcliffe. Um, if you were to pitch up at an English university in the middle of the 19th century um, and ask to see the research facilities, you would be very disappointed because there, there were none. Firstly, the universities were mostly concerned with uh, non-experimental sciences, so you, you wouldn't be shown to any great laboratories. There were some laboratories the students were allowed to, to do things. But original research was not, even in the humanities, something that they thought was important. So much so that if you go to the work of Cardinal Newman, his um, very important lectures... Uh, on the idea of the university. He's quite dismissive of the idea of generating uh, um, new knowledge. Uh, if the object of a university was scientific and philosophical discover- discovery, I do not see why a university should have students. He's very clear that it's not any of their business. And, and certainly there are plenty of examples, and, and Oxford does very well at coming up with these examples, of why universities uh, shouldn't do research, they shouldn't do science, this isn't their business. Uh, discovery of knowledge is, is nothing much to do with them. So one of the great reformers of the University of Oxford is uh, the Master of Balliol, Benjamin Jowett, um, and he's a great idea uh, that he, he reforms all sorts of things at universities, hated by some conservatives, but one of the things he's very clear on is that re- you know research is is not the kind of thing that his university should be doing because it threatened the whole tutorial and examination system which was making Oxford into the highest of high school for boys. So for him, it was a really bad thing and he came up with this idea, someone talking to him, um, research, the master exclaimed, research, he said, a mere excuse for idleness. It has never achieved and will never achieve results of the slightest value. So this is the head of Balliol, uh, very clear that, that this is this is not something that should happen. Clearly, there's a, an ongoing movement. There's what you get is this interaction between the new universities, places like Manchester, who start to borrow the apparatus of the research university, which is developed in the US and developed from Germany, and they work out that actually useful knowledge is a useful to the locale, but actually is generating new things. So they do, both do a, a, what we might think of as applied, but also basic research. So you start to get a development. Um, 
Cambridge, sets up the Cavendish Laboratory in 1874, and gets an extraordinary range of people who, who come. Nobel Prizes developed very quickly. Uh, you know, the fundamentals of the universe are understood by people at Cambridge. Uh, this idea that we should advance knowledge is, is now seen as something they sh- uh, that we should get on to do. Um, there is an association with... Um, uh, Lord Kelvin, who's at Glasgow University for an extraordinary amount of time, uh, but this is a man who um, perfects underwater cables, who does temperature, who does all sorts of things, you know, you know, polyglot of, of thinking about what a university should be doing, discovering things. But uh, in other places, this is still seen as, as definitely a, a bad idea, and it only really... Um, finally gets cemented after the First World War, when the useful knowledge that universities have contributed towards the war is actually seen by both government and by society as something that is, is worth reflecting. And it certainly wins the argument finally in Oxford that you know university research is the kind of thing that they should be doing, and they start to set up the major facilities that they have, uh, and, it, and it really kicks on from there. Now, King's College London's Policy Institute has a new report about student perceptions of free speech. Andrew, talk us through it. Yeah, really interesting report this, Mark. I think they last published some data from 2019, um, and this report updates that uh, in terms of trying to judge both student and public perceptions um, of free speech. Um, It's really worth looking at the report, and there's an article on the wonky site today from Bobby Duffy, the director of the Policy Institute. Um, on, on the whole, you'd look at some of the statistics and say, is there a problem? Um, there's large proportions feel that their right for free speech exists, that it's not um, being affected or, or quashed in any way. Um, but there's a lot of fear starting to creep in. And on a number of the metrics that are in the report, there's a few percentage points decline over the last uh, three or four uh, or three, three or so years. Um, so it's it's one of those topics. I think um, you, you look at it, and I think that there are quite a, a number of people would say, "Well, does the size of the issue warrant the amount of attention and indeed legislation on its way for this matter?" Um, but I think it's definitely the report says to me there's something to keep an eye on. Um, it's not that we've got a huge problem apparently, um, but a lot of the uh, statistics in there, you'd look at it one way and go, "Okay, it doesn't look like there's a problem." Um, you look another way and it seems like there is a, a little bit of concern. Um, and, and I just wonder on this, is is the problem the lack of education and understanding? Um, the, the, the report deals with, you know, do pe- are people offended um, and, and what's the strength of feeling on that? But actually, if we think about what, what our, our universities are there to do, they're to broaden knowledge, they're to offer perspectives, they're to enrich understanding. Um, and at times that will mean there'll be some quite extreme points of view. Um, but hopefully, people don't express those views from a, an antagonistic point of view. That should enrich the debate. And I just wonder whether what might be missing is actually an appreciation and an education that that is what it's for, um, rather than it be for sort of other ill reasons. So I, I find it quite interesting, but quite hard to be able to come up with a conclusion about there's a problem, there's not a problem, there's maybe something to keep an eye on. I don't. I don't know what others thought, but it uh, it was certainly quite thought provoking. Um, but like I say, for me, what I was left with is I just wonder whether there's something to be done to actually help people understand why potentially um, there are controversial individuals or controversial uh, 
concepts that are spoken about so yeah very interesting and quite a lot to unpick and I I think for me you know dare I mention uh, the phrase culture wars Um, but there's no doubt that you know the increase in focus on culture wars is a a key contextual point here in terms of you know polarizing aspects of the debate and you know uh, you're right you know is it an issue or not? Well, you know, two thirds of students say that free speech is protected at their university. 80% of students feel free to express their own views. But confidence drops when a fear of disagreeing with peers is introduced. And it's this idea of, you know, well, what tribe uh, am I, am I kind of uh, aligning to? Um, but I think, you know, it shouldn't be a case of taking sides. You know, these are complex issues, you know, as you say, Andrew, especially when we're navigating a fine line between allowing all sides of a debate to be heard, which is absolutely important, whilst handling the fact that those ideas may make some students feel unsafe. What, what are we trying to achieve as well? Because when I, when I saw that statistic about, you know, 40%, 44% of students um, feel unable to express their views without fear of disagreeing with their peers, I think some people would choose not to be um, entering into a debate if that was going to sort of raise disagreement. And I just wonder if there's a little bit of human nature behind that, as in, should we ever expect that anybody can say anything and without concern about offending somebody? I just don't think that's, I just don't think that's what people are like. And like, it's, it's a fine sort of human response to be cautious of saying things because you don't want to upset people. Like, because, you know, that's sort of a normal way in which to live your life. Like, I, I think the problem with all of this debate is what's the end point of it? And the end point is ultimately that some people will think that universities are closing down free speech. A lot of people who work in universities in the sector will think, I have no idea why this debate is still going on. And then there'll be some people who genuinely sat there saying, actually, there's not enough safeguards in to protect my own identities or my own experiences through which this free speech runs into. And ultimately, I think the sort of perceptions aren't going to be solved by regulation or by sort of greater oversight. Because I know we've said this again and again and again, I just don't believe the problem is as large as made out. And I think it is useful to keep this idea and this sort of issue about free speech in the news because it distracts from the real sort of material concerns on a lot of university campuses, i.e. the failing standards of uh, sort of student life because of the economic crisis we're in, the issues around quality are sort of another corollary of this. But if you keep going back to freedom of speech, it gives you something to unite around without ever having to actually do anything as a meaningful intervention. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good point, James. And I think, you know, the whole, you know, regulation piece has become it's become very negative, hasn't it? It's become it's about defaulting to regulating you know, against free uh, free speech being curtailed, rather than focusing on the positives of um, you know creating those environments where we can support free speech through a kind of you know positive steps. And, yeah, and like, I'm not I'm not really sure where we're meant to fall in this anymore. So you'll have seen um, the select committee case recently about the publication debate which arose from the University of Manchester, and the point which was being made in that select committee was universities need to put um, safeguards around what can be study or what can be researched because uh, some of it will be controversial or indeed harmful. In the exact same select committee, questions are asked about, are universities banning books? Now, the problem with this freedom of speech debate is you can't simultaneously hold in your head that universities have a role to set accessible parameters of inquiry and research, and at the same time saying, actually, you're never allowed to stop anything. And uh, and yet, and yet. <laughs> yes, and so, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Some, yeah. some, some, some appear to be able to, yeah. But I, I think, I think, yeah. But the the Bobby Duffy, I mean, he made the point on Monkey as well. Is you know there is there's space here. There's space here for some stepping back and thinking about where different people are coming from, and not perpetuating, I guess, a cycle where 
um, you know, media stories, convecting media stories about free speech kind of feeds concerns about free speech. More of a comment than a question. The only other, the only other thought I'd add on this was um, if, and as I say with a big capital letters, if in certain areas there is a feeling that there's some restriction um, on this, how much of that is actually the flip side would be an institution protecting its reputation um, in terms of yeah the risk of the headlines and the whatever else? Because there's no context or rarely context or understanding there. And I just wonder whether, that, again, that's a little bit of a, of a rub against this agenda. Yeah. And I thought the bit which, you know, I particularly liked in uh, Bobby's piece, Andrew, was when he was saying at the end, you know, we can calm down the rhetoric and sort of think about the solutions. I think the only place that falls short is that often the rhetoric is driven by people who have regulatory powers. So it's not necessarily a, a conversation having a vacuum, as it were. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. UCU has a new report about social class and academia. Claire, walk us through the highlights, please. Yeah, so uh, this is research into the experiences of UCU members on the impact of social class on their work. Now, um, there are a few caveats around the sample and the methodology and even around terminology. Um, it's a self-selecting survey, just under 4,000 members in FE and HE. Um, so perhaps not generalizable beyond the, beyond the sample. But, you know, some interesting, um, points, I think, for reflection. Um, you know, respondents were asked about their beliefs in the role class plays in areas such as recruitment, retention, working conditions. You know, over half of the respondents agree that working class background presents a barrier to career progression, for example. That's, that's one of the statistics. Now, you know, the report is helpful because I think it starts to inform a, a broader conversation related to the lived experiences of colleagues we work alongside and how, um, you know, external challenges, which we're very well aware of, you know, the cost of living crisis will impact people differently. And again, we come back to this uh, point around the exacerbation of social inequalities. So for me, you know, there is a broader point here around um, not just social class, but but potentially intersectional discrimination and, and something that, you know, this is something that colleges and universities clearly still need to work much harder at eradicating yeah yeah um i think that, that's right isn't it james i mean so 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 putting the methodology aside uh, some of the comments from um staff at universities were, were quite revealing weren't they yeah and you know i think one of the most interesting parts of ucu's report where working class academics have identified that yes they believe there's barriers and sort of you know issues with accents or whatever else but 
academics who don't identify from working class backgrounds don't perceive the issue in the same way. And again, thinking about our last discussion about freedom of speech, actually, I wonder if part of this is a misunderstanding of experiences. And actually, this sort of deficit model taken towards working class academics or indeed working class students of there is somehow an issue to be solved or there is somehow a sort of leg up um, in that area. I mean, I say this as someone who was who well who is working class went to university as a working class student i would never dream of becoming an academic even though i worked in university it just doesn't always seem like something for people from my background uh, and I, th- I think that's that's a really good point james and you know thank you for sharing that and and i think yeah there's something here isn't there about us um, you know, developing those great role models, providing space for people to access those sorts of opportunities to kind of, you know, look at the art of the possible here. But I do think this is wrapped up with this broader um, challenge that institutions have around you know, equality, diversity, inclusion um, issues more broadly. Yeah. And so it's, it's a societal, it's a, again, it comes back to this thing when we often discuss at Wonky, it's a societal issue. Universities are part of society and therefore we shouldn't be surprised it plays out in those fields. Like, you know, working class people are underrepresented generally when it comes to professional roles and universities are part of that ecosystem. I, I agree with Claire that it's another aspect of the EDI agenda. Um, and, and to be honest, I think the more aspects of that that get some focus, it raises attention. If we think about the debate around um, representation of underrepresented groups around boards, um, then I, I do think it's an, an issue worth talking about. Because if people talk about it, then they think differently and they educate themselves to be conscious. You know, it's the old conscious, unconscious bias stuff. Um, so for me, this is just a, another positive aspect of something to think about um, and to be aware of. Um, because if you've got that, you start to be conscious of it. And if you, if nobody ever raises this, then, you know, potentially it's not something that they're conscious of or indeed understand there to be a problem if nobody steps forward and, and actually says things um, that this is raising attention to. So I think it's two different things. It, it's brilliant to be raising it. It's certainly important to be aware of it. Completely fixing it will take some time. And I think it was, you know, really telling in some parts. So when I was reading through it the other day, it talks about a working class woman from Northwest England, where she speaks about sort of the the material barriers for being working class, but actually talks about their feeling sometimes like there's not collegiality or the sort of a, a perception of what are you doing here. And it's hard not to feel quite sad and quite moved that people, you know, feel like that in their own workplaces, never mind university generally, which we believe to these places of progression and sort of open thought and challenge. And, and I think, you know, the, these stories uh, and that narrative, it, it's incredibly important, you know, particularly for you know, people like myself, senior leaders in higher education, um, you know, any research insights stories that help us to start to understand even in just a small way you know the lived experiences of people um with you know with difference with uh, different backgrounds yeah that's incredibly important so yeah it's it's a report that i think will will spark some discussion but as i say for me it is situated within this much bigger challenge around understanding difference and different lived experiences. I, I think just just to sit, like pick up on that, Claire. That you know, when I worked at university, I'm aware of class differences, but that is because I am myself working class. I wonder if, sort of, from you know, from your perspective, or from that institutional perspective, you feel a class dynamic on campus, or whether you know, like it doesn't quite manifest in that way. Yeah, I, I was thinking about this actually, and, and I kind of um, I looked through the report and and, and I noticed there was. Um, some discussion around terminology and and you know 
I have to say, I wasn't even sure if I fully understood what we kind of meant by working class within within the context of the report. And when I kind of thought about colleagues and myself, I thought, oh, well, is that me? Is that them? Um, you know, is it about background, upbringing, you know, cultural preferences? Is it a financial thing? Is it purely about education? So, you know, when you start to dig into it, it kind of raises all sorts of questions around labels and, you know, terminology. And I think we need to be careful there, don't we? But I think it is about understanding that, you know, people are coming to work or coming to their studies, uh, perhaps with backgrounds and lived experiences that might be um, you know, causing an internal or an external barrier to success. Yeah, I, I think it'd be a, a whole new wonky show of can you be working class and a professor, you know, because of your material sort of incomes. And Mark, I'm sure you would appreciate us getting into that now. So, that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we discussed today or throughout the season. You'll find links on the show notes at wonky.com. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify, Acast, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything that's going on in the UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our various subscription services. So thanks very much to Claire, Andrew, James and everyone at Team Wonky that helps make the show happen behind the scenes. Until next week, stay wonky. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusive Apply. See site for details.